Church. Good to see everybody. Y'all doing all right today? Well, if I have not met you, my name is Jeff. I'm a pastor here at the church. We're glad that you've decided to spend your Sunday with us, particularly if you are on the live stream. Thank you for wherever you are, whether you're like out and about watching it on your mobile phone or in your house projecting on a bigger screen. Uh, we're glad that you have spent some time to be with us this morning. We're going to continue in our series in First Peter, so go ahead and turn your Bibles to there. As we're doing that, uh, I want to do two things. Firstly, you know what? Worship this morning, like worship as the, you know, everything we do in, in church is worship, right? But uh, I mean, it caught me off guard this morning. It was, it was unhurried. It was unpretentious. Um, and there aren't even a lot of people here this morning, but it was just what my soul needed. Man, it was the right words, the right temperament. I mean, so, you know, thanks be to God because he's the one that sets the atmosphere for us. Thanks to our worship team um, for ushering in the presence of God and leading us. I mean, I'm just, I mean, gosh, firstly, I'm, uh, I shouldn't say this. I'm surprised at God's graciousness to us and uh, I'm appreciative. So I hope you are too. Um, here's the second thing. That was the first thing. Here's the second thing. Um, You've heard me talk about church planting a lot. We are, I guess we were a church plant. We're in the seventh year of our life as a church. But one of the mega strategies of our church in regards to how we do evangelism and do outreach is that we pour a lot of money and resources into church planting. And, uh, and this morning, um, um, some of the churches that we support directly, physically as a church through an organization called Leaders Collective are, are launching. It's their official like first day as a, as a church. And I want to show you some pictures of church planners. So they'll show this picture. Um, these are some guys that I know and have mentored personally. And three of them, like three of them in the midst of a pandemic, in the race, in the midst of all the craziness going on in our country right now, are launching churches somewhere in America. And that's just, you know, that's a God thing, right? That's a God thing. I'm gonna probably need you, uh, Jonathan, to turn the volume down a little bit. Um, so we wanna pray for them. Uh, one of these churches is, is launching in Jacksonville, Florida. One church is launching in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, and the other is launching in Burleson, Texas. And so three of those guys, two others have launched uh, in previous months amidst the COVID and the rest of them, like 10 people, 10 churches that didn't exist yesterday are going, you know, are going to exist sometime this year. And so we want to, we are partnering with them. We want to pause and, and, and give God glory for what he's doing in the lives of these men and their families, but also in the lives of the churches that, that will be brought forth uh, through their efforts. So Father, we are grateful this morning for the, for your church that we get to gather here. It's not a, it's not a have to, it's a get to. Uh, the, the, the word encourages us to, to come together, um, 
not because you're forcing us to, because we get to, uh, to celebrate every day the, just the beauty of God's grace in our life through the person and work of Jesus. So we do that. We rejoice with these, um, with these church planters and their families and the churches that you're forming through their lives and through their sacrifice. And we say yes and amen. We say thanks be to God that amidst the difficulties uh, of this crazy year, 2020, in our country, God, that, that, that Jesus' promise is holding true. Jesus built his church and the gates of hell, that coronavirus or racial tensions and all the stuff that we've experienced over the last few months will get in the way of that. They won't prevail over it. And so, God, we lift these men and their families up. We pray that you strengthen them. God, we pray especially for today that they would sense your presence. They would, they would, that you would sing over them songs of deliverance. God, that people would come to faith through the word this morning. And God, that you be praised for, for their efforts and ours. We thank you for them. We pray for them. We lift them up and we give glory to them in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right. So we're in chapter three this morning of first Peter. Let's read a few words together. We're going to read the first seven verses out loud, and that will be our text for this morning. And then we're going to dive in. So uh, as is our tradition, uh, I'm going to have you guys read out loud on the screen uh, with me or use your, your Bible if you brought a physical. Anybody bring a physical Bible to church this morning? All right. I got three of you. Amen to that. All right. Let's read. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word of the Lord. All right. Anybody like wincing up, tightening up, like you got a, like <laughs> a furrowed brow from this text of scripture here? All right. So this is one of those passages, right? I got to admit, this is one of those passages, like if we weren't like going through a book of the Bible and going verse by verse, Jeff and Nick, we would not choose to preach this on most, on most days, right? And so... Um, that is one of the advantages of, of being a church that tries to stick with the Bible, right? It it's kind of forces us to, to be honest. It forces us um, on a day like today that the theme of the text is the theme of my sermon. So guess what we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about husbands and wives. We're going to talk about marriages. Um, you know, there's a whole lot going on in our text. Much of this is cultural, and if we don't get the context and pay attention to it, we will mess this up. Right. So we got to be um, uh, we got to pay particular attention to the context of what Peter is saying to us this morning. We also want to be wise how we approach the scriptures today, because there's been some who have taken this and they've um, uh, taken it out of context and really uh, set people loose to abuse the people of God. 
So the last few weeks, we've been talking about um, submitting to authority structures, and Peter continues that train today. Uh, first, we looked at, Nick preached this three weeks ago, uh, Christian citizens relating to the civil government and how we're supposed to do that. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, slaves. Peter is giving instructions to, to household servants, and we can, in the 21st century, we can see those people as being anybody that's marginalized or oppressed, anybody that's experiencing some kind of uh, like stuck in bondage, experiencing injustices in the world, and they're without hope of being delivered or rescued from their circumstance. And how do we respond? How do we submit to uh, a master, a lord, someone lording over us in those circumstances? And Peter gave some very specific guidance into that. Today we're considering the dynamics of marriage, wives submitting to, to husbands. And here's my take on this. Each of these requires wisdom. You're like These are wisdom needing circumstances. Like, when do I submit? How do I submit? Do I even have to submit? Like some of us are asking those questions, like why should I submit to someone that's not a Christian? Why should I submit to someone that's lording over me and oppressing me? And Peter has words for us in regards to that. Most of us can think of situations, particularly situations where we have been told or encouraged to be submissive to to someone, to some authority um, where that submission doesn't just have a black and white um, result to it, right? And, it, and we need wisdom for that. It calls for wisdom. But I think uh, a passage like this also calls for clarity. And so if you're not a Christian here today, uh, maybe uh, just reading this text um, in a way triggered some things in you that you've uh, thought about Christianity or that you've heard about Christianity or perhaps that you've experienced as being on the other end of Christianity, people abusing um, what they see here and forcing that on you. And even if you are a Christian, many of us read these words, but we misunderstand exactly what Peter's message is. So we want to be wise and we want to be clear about uh, what we're reading today. We want to be wise in unpacking the text because every situation is different and we need to keep that in mind. I think of abuse situations, particularly of women uh, that I have overseen, mediated, been privy, privy to, um, in my time in the military, uh, in my few years as a pastor, and I have to apologize and admit that people like me, pastors in authority, and sometimes the church have like messed this up, right? We've had uh, women and, and their children in cases where they're being physically or emotionally, situationally abused, and a lot of times what the church will say is, God hates divorce, like like. like you gotta, you gotta shut up and, and 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 submit. You gotta stick this out. And I mean, that's not the right thing for the church to say. But therein are are some of the cases that that people have used. They used these words to um, to force women into this restrictive kind of life life situation. And that's why context is important. There is a. a a unique cultural tension involved in our in our text. And so the situation is you have a number of women who've come to faith while married and their spouse is an unbeliever. Their spouses do not believe in God. And so in the ancient world, there were a number of ethical codes, mostly written by pagan philosophers and and uh, and ethicists that govern how people got along in societies, particularly how they got along in the household, husbands and wives and slaves and, and, uh, and relationships like that. What's unique about these ancient codes is they were addressed particularly and only to men, right? They, they addressed 
how the men were to, to lead in these uh, different relationships. Men were the head of the household. They were the head of the family. Wives, children, slaves weren't considered to have any kind of moral agency or ability to weigh in on matters for themselves like the man was. And therefore, you get instructions like this. And so what Peter is doing in this text is he is thinking about what the philosophers have said, and he's bringing a counter to it. He, he's, he's matching it to how life should be lived in the kingdom of God. And so you can imagine in this first century context, the gospel shows up, right? The gospel shows up to these communities. The gospel shows up to the Roman province. And the gospel, what it does is it informs these subjugated people, women, children, slaves. They can actually have access to God through faith in Jesus, that they personally, individually can know God. And now even a woman can have a direct connection with God apart from her husband. What's the effect in that? Well, firstly, it's freedom. It's all these marginalized people who instantly have a dignity and a worth and a value to their lives that the rest of society was not giving them. But more importantly, you have these women who are Christians but are married to non-Christians, and they're forming friends outside of their marriage, and they're in this community, and they're meeting regularly with these people. And this would have this would have been scandalous, right? Because uh, a wife could not in, in this society, Greco-Roman society, wives couldn't have friends outside of her husband's friends. A wife couldn't have a god other than her husband's god. If she came in uh, to her marriage with any kind of spirituality or faith, she had to give that up and 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 take on whatever her husband believed or not. And so you can see how. Uh, Christianity could be mis easily misunderstood because of cultural differences. And if you think about it, we, I mean, that, that same kind of predicament kind of sort of exists in our world today. In the first century, Christianity seemed more inclusive and liberal. Inclusive and liberal does not mean what it means in our day today. Okay, It was inclusive and liberal in that um, marginalized people, the poor, the uh, widows, orphans, uh, the sojourner, the, the immigrant, were, were, who were outsiders of the whole community, were brought in and given a home. They were given a community to, to, to dwell in. That's how uh, Christianity in the first century was inclusive and liberal. In our day and age, in the 21st century, to the outside world, Christianity oftentimes looks restrictive and exclusive. We are a club. You've got to follow rules to be in our club. And unless you follow our rules, you might as well turn around and, and, and leave. Right. I'm not saying that's how Christianity is. I'm saying like on the large scale, that's how we receive to the outside world. And so we're in this weird place. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about how we handle ourselves in the middle of a very significant cultural challenges that we face in today and perhaps into the future? And I think one of the overarching things that we need to think about that Peter is conveying to us is that we're called to a missionary tension. All right. He's he's giving us he's giving women and men this perspective of your your life is is overtly about evangelism. Right. In everything that you do, even in difficult circumstances. And so we're called to a missionary tension to be faithful to God's word in the midst of a world that faintly believes in God. But in a way that's winsome, that's appealing so that it might win some to Jesus. What did Paul say? He says, I'm going to be everything to all people that I might win some. And Peter is. Um, he is suggesting kind of sort of that in a different language. And so today we're talking about uh, the husbands and wives. We're talking about marriage. But here's what I want to begin with. And this is not going to be in our text. 
But I mean, we don't talk about marriage much. We, you know, when we come across it, we talk about it. Today we're talking about it. And so I want to begin talking about what we actually believe as Christians about our marriages. Because Peter is working from a presupposition that marriage is between one man and one woman for life as basic and constitutive of the family unit. For all of you in here, for many of you on the live stream, that's like, duh, like that's obvious, right? But for a whole host of people outside of the church, outside of Christianity, those are downright offensive and, and, and fighting words, right? We live in a, in a, a, a tension that, that to affirm one thing is often to be understood as I'm condemning everything else. And you got to know that your Bible does not do that. Your Bible does affirm, like from the very beginning, the, the sanctity and the importance and the foundational aspect of marriage. God implemented marriage before there was sin in the world. And so his intent is that our marriages, uh, that, that, that the whole world would be filled with men and women in the, the state of holy matrimony would get married and they have kids and they fill the earth with, with these family structures. But the Bible is not against people not getting married. But to be sure, there are some things that our Bible says specifically about your and my marriage. All right. If you're single here, the Bible's not against you. Right. It's just saying it's just talking about marriage right now. I'm talking about singles next week, maybe. First, the Bible says we and we believe this. God made men and women to be individuals who complement each other. Did you hear that? It's not just that women complement whatever the man lacks is that we complement each other. That's God's intention from the very beginning. His intent is that men and women come together in holy matrimony, forming a covenant bond. This covenant says that God sets the standards. He brings us together. And as he brings us together, we unite in, in him. And, it's a, and it's, a, it's, it's a covenant. It means that my response to you is not based upon your response to me. I'm going to, uh, to honor you, to love you, to receive you. Not based upon what you do, what you say, but I'm going to I'm going to love and honor you and, 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 and receive you because I love you. Right. While the culture says that to us that that marriage is temporary, if necessary at all, and that a person's biological sex should have no bearing on their choice of a marriage partner. We affirm what Genesis says before there before sin entered into the world. Genesis 1:26 that God has made man male and female and, and, we're, and we're made in his image. There are two sexes. Male and female were both created in his image. That it's not good for man to be alone. We affirm Genesis 2.24. Important, important passage of scripture. Why? Because the Bible repeats it five times to, to show us its prominence and its precedence uh, in the formation of the family and what God thinks about people. Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Everything that goes wrong in your marriage is because you're violating What's going on in that verse right there? We affirm what Jesus says in the Gospels. What therefore God has joined together, let men not separate. Matthew 19, 6. This is a verse probably read at every one of your marriage, every one of your weddings. And we affirm lastly the picture that Paul gives us, that Christian marriage is a beautiful picture of Jesus and his church. The way that Jesus loves sinners like you and me and makes us his bride by giving his life for us in the gospel. And so, of course, that's not in our text. I'm just, you know, I'm, I got the mic. So I, it's important for us to be reminded uh, what is Christian marriage? What is it that the Bible professes and, wh and what do we believe? That's what we believe. 
And I think in the backdrop of everything that Peter's going to say this morning to husbands and wives, even husbands and wives in a difficult predicament of marriage, this is, this is in the background of everything he's saying. And in our text, Peter has really uh, two trains of thought. Okay, He has basically, basically a two-point sermon to, to his readers. Uh, he has a word to wives, and he has a word to husbands, and his word to wives as we approach our text is live honorable lives. Look at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their lives. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. The word that we need to tackle first is the word likewise. Okay, that's the, probably the most important word here in our text, because what it says is everything that Peter is going to say to husbands and wives has a precedence that comes before everything he's saying here. In other words, he's, he's pointing to what he said previously, referring all the way back to chapter 2, verse 17, where Peter says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, love the emperor. And so in chapter 3, he says, likewise. So Peter's calling his readers, particularly these wives, to live honorable lives even amidst situations of suffering and injustice. And some of the latest, like, you say it isn't so. Like, how could that be? Someone once said, you don't actually see an honorable life, you experience it. And so an honorable life is, is where the recipient feels honored by how you've lived in front of them. An honorable life it's, it's, it's the way that you've been treated, the way you've been loved, perhaps the, the way you've even been disagreed with. And we don't actually always see that. We're experiencing that. And Peter is calling wives to that kind of life. And so back in chapter 2, verse 17, Peter says, honor everyone, even people that don't deserve your honor. And, and, the, and the person that he'll name in chapter 2, he says the emperor, he's talking about Nero, who Nick preached three weeks ago, was one of the um, history shows that Nero was one of the most oppressive rulers ever to live on the face of the planet that persecuted Christians. He did some heinous things to Christians. And so Peter is saying, exist in your marriage, ladies, but all of us exist in and walk in the culture that we're in, but in a way that subverts the brokenness. We want to turn it upside down. You know, normally in the rhetoric of their day, in the first century, philosophers wouldn't even address the entire household. They'd only concentrate on the men. And so in our text, we've got to notice that Peter honors the household order. He talks about women and men and children and slaves, but he makes sure to address the marginalized people before he even speaks to the husband. And that would be countercultural. Peter is bringing the kingdom of God into their space. This would be subversive, right? He, he's turning what the culture thinks is the way that life is supposed to go on its head and says, no, God has a better way. The kingdom of God operates like this. And what is that way? It's honoring the weak, uh, weaker members of society saying, hey, weaker members, I know that you're being persecuted, oppressed, like life is hard, but hey, don't feel sorry for yourself. You can actually do something to honor Jesus with your lives. You're not helpless victims, so make decisions to be honorable in all those things. That's what he's saying to his wives here. And as a church, you know what? We should abide by those same words. And so the question is, how as a church do we do that? How do we be in the culture and yet live counterculturally? 
There's one way that we could do it. We could actually engage with the world just like the world does and prove that we're no different. But that's not going to be that's not going to subvert the the natural order of, of how the world works. Right. That won't subvert a broken kingdom like the one that we live in. Someone once said subversion is doing something different than what you are immersed in. It's doing something different. It's not just standing against it. And that's one of the things that that people argue about Christians. We're against a lot of stuff. But the question is, what actually are we for? It's not standing against stuff, but engaging in ways that shows what's wrong and pointing it out and how it could be better. If I could give a plug for the book, the, the book club that we're doing, that's why we're reading this particular book, Compassion and Conviction by the End Campaign, because it talks about how Christians can engage their world as, as citizens, just like everybody else, but do it in a way that we hold on to our convictions, but still we can address with compassion all the social things going on in our world, like abortion and race issues and injustice issues and politics and the like. And so I would encourage you, grab the book. It's a really quick and good read. You will be educated by it. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a nonpartisan book, but this book does a good job of, of balancing uh, the issues of social issues and politics. And I, I think it gives good guidance for Christians about being good citizens and engaging the world that we're in. So we hope that you will you will join us. And so Peter, in view of a broken culture, he says this. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. What does that mean? Even if some are not Christians, they're they're far from God and not even wanting to come near God, even if some. Uh, or are in that situation, he says, win them to the truth of God, but win them without words as you start. Like, how in the world do I win somebody without words? Peter says, he's saying this, and you've heard this, our, our lives are open letters, right? We, we are living epistles. We're an expression of the gospel constantly changing us. It doesn't mean we get everything right. Like every day we're going to get something wrong. We're going to sin, right? We're going to sin blatantly, openly in front of people. But he's saying somewhere therein is the grace of God. They see you doing that. And yeah, there's this beauty of what God is doing in and through you. And he says that's going to be more effective than what you say. Peter's not saying don't say stuff, ladies. He's not saying don't say what you got to say. He's just saying let what you say be a little bit softer than how you live your life. In fact, Two weeks from now, we get to verse 15 and Peter will say, all right, open your mouth because you need to defend the hope that you have in Jesus. But right now he's saying, let your life speak louder than your words. And so he's speaking to wives, but really this is for all of us, right? Again, if we go back to chapter two, verse 12, this is what he says. He says, keep your conduct before the Gentiles as honorable. So what? So that some of them in the world will be won over by how you live your life. Peter tells us, give honor even to those that we think don't deserve it. And so we tell the truth about the gospel and what we believe about it when we, by the way that we live. In other words, our lives live in Jesus, allows Jesus to speak a better word. And again, this is instructive, not just for wives interacting with husbands, but for how we engage with the world, how we engage in, in helpful, appealing, and, and even winsome ways. Women, you have a superpower. You guys know what it is? Ladies in the room, you know what your superpower is? God has given you not just influence, but he's given you the, the ability to speak life. Like your words 
have the power to build up. They do. But here's the thing. Sometimes that superpower can go awry, it can go astray, and you can use it against yourself and other people. Perhaps one of the reasons why a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times women struggle with, with stuff like gossip and slander is, is you got this superpower. You got this superpower to use your words to build up, but also it can be used to tear down. And as I encourage the women, what I'm not saying is that men are not important. Like the, the older I get, the more I appreciate uh, and, and respect my dad for all the things that he, all the ways he sacrificed and for all the things that he did for me that I was unaware of that I only know now because I have kids of my own that are growing up and sort of making their way in the world. And I'm saying, oh, so that was my, that's what my dad was doing. But there is something special about wives and particularly moms. And I think Peter here under the, under the background is saying, you know, wives, moms, you got a lot of power and it's the influence God gives you. It's also the fact that, that women birth our kids for nine months. You got this kid in the womb that's listening to her voice. And so naturally, the baby's born, the wife is nurturing the kid, he's growing up. And, and the words of a mom just ring so loud and true and primary in our, in our ears and in our hearts that we can't help all of us, men and women, boys and girls, um, just, just want to hear from our moms. It perks us up. I think most of the men in the room would admit it. You know what? The, like some of the things that that give us the most encouragement are, are what our wives say to us about us. But some of the things that tear us down the most are some of the things our wives say to us and tell us. Right? Our, our, our wife, because she knows us, she, they know our weaknesses. They can say something that just cut right, like deep. I mean, down deep, right? And so wives, you've got a superpower to build up, but also it can tear down. And Peter's saying to you wives, your unbelieving husband, all right, this is the situation in, in the first, first century, your unbelieving husband is already feeling dis, uh, disrespected because of your faith. And so honor him and respect him. Build him up. And so ladies in the 21st century, here's how you can help. I only got one thing for you. Like, don't do this. Don't gossip, right? Don't go to women's Bible study and, and get like this little side click and choose to gossip or perhaps slander your, your, your husbands. Uh, the Bible calls wives to honor their husbands. Ladies, your, your, your man wants respect. And, and here's the hard part. He wants respect even if he doesn't deserve it, even if it's not worthy of it. And I think Peter would say, even if he's not worthy of it, you can help by how you treat him. And so wives, you have the superpower I would say the church has this superpower as well, this, this ability to speak life into the culture and have it take root and cause fruit to grow, right? The church has this superpower. Unfortunately, we, we've given up that, that, we've given up that superpower, right? Because we're so dead set on pointing out in the culture what it's doing wrong and how it's doing wrong and it's going to hell, right? We would rather do that. Right now in the ongoing conversation nationally that we're having about politics and race and intermersed with that is gender equality and sex and marriage and all this other stuff. You can't help but be saddened by how publicly we're just tearing each other down. It's Christians against non-Christians. It's Christians against other Christians that believe kind of sort of differently about what the Bible says. And here's what Peter is saying. He's like, have nothing to do with that stuff. He's, he's telling us, live in an honorable way. 
You know, perhaps one of the reasons why Christianity is, is disliked, I would use the word hated even today, is because we don't give honor nor respect, particularly to those that disagree with us. It's, it's our way or the highway to hell with you and your thoughts. I don't want to hear them because my Bible says this. We, I mean, we're not even willing to hear other people and what they believe. And so people on the outside, are, here's, what they're, here's what their rhetoric is to us. How can you talk to me about your God when you dishonor me with your words? It compromises the very truth that we cling to and then we teach. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. I laugh at this because, I mean, this is, this is a funny verse. Peter isn't making a funny statement. All right, this, we got to use some common sense here, ladies, right? And, and men, too. And the emphasis here, although the words aren't in the text, is on living godly lives. Before he says live honorable lives, here he's saying live godly lives. Peter isn't saying, ladies, that you shouldn't want to care for yourself and, and look nice. He's like he's not saying uh, like wake up and however you wake up is how you're going to exist throughout the day. He's not he's not saying go to Wegmans or, or like do all your shopping with a tangled mess of a hair in your yoga pants that you had on all week. He's, he's not saying that. Right. He's not saying don't pay attention to the way that you are dressed and the way you groom yourself. And to be honest, Here's how the church has missed it as well, because I've been in this circle in the very beginning of my Christian life. There, there, there are these fundamental movements in the church that have stressed that women, all right, you, you want to be separate from the culture, not a part of the culture. And when the way you do that is you just look plain old black bad, like all the time. You don't want to cause attention to yourself. And so don't wear any makeup, only wear dresses. You know, like, where does that come from? I'm sorry. I'm wearing my emotions on my sleeve. Thank God for the verse, the, the but in verse four. But let your adorning be hidden, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so there's a cultural context here, right? Ladies, uh, the ladies that went out by themselves dressed up were assumed to be women of the night. It's the P word. They were assumed to be prostitutes unless they were dressed up and they were with their husbands. And so if, if by herself it was assumed she was going out to be with another man, it would have been seen as, as wrong. It would have been seen as, as scandalous. And so when we put this in the context of the gospel, with Christianity breaking into this culture, what you have are, are men and women who are going out, they're meeting with each other, but they're not meeting under um, any kind of uh, bad situations, they're meeting to worship Jesus. They're meeting to study their Bible together. They're meeting to break bread together. And so if a woman by herself went out even to hang out with other Christians and she's dressed nice, she, she looks nice, the thought was that these Christians have started a new sex cult, right? And they're, in, they're engaging in behavior that's inappropriate. And so Peter is, 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 is getting ahead of them and he's saying, hey, hey, don't, don't, don't do that. He's saying, let's be careful to, to not do things that potentially defame uh, the name of Jesus, but more so that give people reasons to reject the gospel. So in other words, he's encouraging these ladies, limit some of your freedoms so that you don't give your husbands, your unbelieving husbands, or anyone on the outside of Christianity more reason to reject Jesus and the gospel. And that's, I mean, that's a word for all of us, right? That's a word, that's a word for all of us. Limit what you do for the sake of others. It's like your neighbor inviting you over to their house for dinner, and you know your neighbors are vegans, and you're a meat eater, and you're like, well, I can't go over there. I eat meat. I don't want to eat veggies. 
What would the Bible say? The Bible would say, go and eat veggies to the glory of God, right? For the sake of your neighbor and the fame of Jesus. Like, good grief. You can't give up meat for one meal. So we forsake everything for the gospel. Be willing to do whatever is necessary for others while also not compromising your faith in God and your integrity as a, as a child of God. Practically, ladies, here's some practical instruction. Peter's also saying the most important and attractive thing about you isn't on the outside, it's on the inside. Right? And so he's, his, his encouragement, his strong encouragement, is, is don't focus so much on the external. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying don't look good, like don't glam yourself up, particularly for your husband and for your family. He's saying, don't, don't focus on that to the, to the extent that um, you're letting your priorities get out of order. Don't prioritize mere appearances. Why? Because beauty isn't just shapes and colors. It's not how much you spent on a tummy tuck or a liposuction. It's not what you're wearing about the, the latest fashions and all that stuff. Real beauty, Peter says in, in verse 4, is a gentle and a quiet spirit. One who hopes in God, whose faith is in Jesus. And the way to win your spouse particularly your unbelieving spouse, is the imperishable, hidden beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit. And he says that's what God finds beautiful. And, and, and that's an important thing that we need to remind ourselves. Why? Because the culture says the exact opposite. And we get, the, and, and I don't know how, how many times, I don't know how often you're reading your Bible, but, but I do know how often you are immersed in the culture. Every day when you wake up, you turn on your TV, you look at your smartphone, you're reading the news, you're watching a movie. What you're getting is this, this whitewashed picture of beauty, right? And it's this, um, it, it's this, what do they call it? What they do? It's this Photoshop view of what beauty actually is. And it can confuse us, right, as to what God's standards for us. If we choose the society's perspective, perspective of beauty as opposed to God, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, trying to make ourselves look good. And what we're doing is we're trying to postpone death. I don't know if you've noticed it, but here's what I've noticed in my 54 years of life. Every person that's born at some point is going to die. So, so men, women, y'all look really good, by the way. Okay, but, but here's the thing. You're going to get old and you're going to die. And the older that you get, the worse you look. I'm not trying to be crass. It's just the truth, right? Like, I look at myself in the mirror and like, dang, Jeff, you have no hair anymore. Like, gray every, like, gr- everywhere. Gray. Like, who wants that? Nobody. <laughs> Peter says, don't waste time giving yourself to externals. Give yourself to becoming a godly person, to, to becoming an honorable person, to becoming a godly person. Because the more we devote ourselves to godliness, the more godly our external behavior is going to look. Jesus says this in the Gospels. He says, out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth, and therefore our lives speak. Guess what? You can't get good stuff out if you don't have good stuff in. That's not how it works. And so Peter's encouraging you, all right, let's let's get the godly character in so that what looks like what looks right on the outside is what God wants you to to, to display to an unbelieving world. And and here's what usually happens in the church. We engage with ungodly behavior and ungodly ways. Like we see ugliness out in society with with unbelieving people who who are going to act like that anyway. Right. Because they're unbelievers. They don't have the spirit of God um, sort of balancing out what they think about life in themselves. 
And we encounter society and we tell society all the ways that it's wrong, all the ways it's sinning. And we do the same. We have the same vitriol and anger that the world uses. And I have to tell you this, Christians, it's no matter that it's, it's no matter that society rejects the Christianity and the Jesus that we love because they see such ugliness coming out of us. And so here's what Peter says. He says to ladies, live honorably. He says, live godly. But he also says, ladies, don't give in to fear. Verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter's doing two things here in the, in the text. He's continuing this exhortation that Christian women should seek um, inner beauty, for that is the proven path of godly women. And then he notices, he recognizes Sarah, someone who's gone before. Sarah, Abraham's wife, and the inner beauty that she had, more importantly, the submission that she showed to her husband in not so favorable circumstances. And then he qualifies it. And so when he's talking about Sarah, he's actually referring back to, to Genesis 18. More specifically, he's referring back to Genesis 12, where Abraham, the man of faith, the father of our faith, did not lead well. So it was ugly. In fact, what, what, what Abraham does is he exhibits horrible leadership, giving in to the fear of man, trying to escape his own death by offering his wife as a concubine to Pharaoh so that he would not get killed. And, and, and ladies, you've got to be thinking, like, that's crazy. But the unfortunate thing is, I, I think, as husbands, we, we kind of fulfill this in small pockets all the time. And so here's a, here's a story. And so uh, there's a famine in the land, and God sends Abraham and Sarah into Egypt. And as they go into Egypt, Abraham looks at Sarah and says, my gosh, you're beautiful. And if like, your beauty is going to attract people to you, and they're going to kill me so they get you. And so what does this joker do? He's like Abraham, the man of faith, right? He tells his wife, all right, sweetie, just say you're my sister, right? And, and there was a half-truth in that. The Bible tells us uh, Sarah was Abraham's half-sister, but she was still his wife. And this dude was willing to give up his wife to, as a concubine to Pharaoh so that he would live. As the story goes, uh, so Sarah is in, in Pharaoh, uh, Sarah is in Pharaoh's house overnight. Like chaos starts to, starts to break out. Um, plagues start to, to come about in Pharaoh's house. He wakes up in the middle of the night and says, this must be Yahweh, Abraham's God, doing something. Something's going wrong. Some sin is happening. And so he calls Abraham in and he says, what, what, what have you done? Why would you do this? Why would you give me your wife as a concubine when that's wrong? And so I don't know if you did you catch that. Here's a pagan, ungodly man, an evil leader who who has who has better common sense than the man of God. Right. And, and, and the but the picture that Peter is pointing out is that Sarah submits to this. When Abraham tells Sarah, say, you're my sister. What does she do? She said, all right, I'll do it. And we might think that's stupid. But there's, there's a quality, there's an inner quality that the Bible is bringing about, about Sarah in that she trusted not her husband in his idiocy. She trusted the God that she served in her particular situation. You know, there's something that my wife demonstrates to me every day. And, and this is not necessarily uh, a, a, 
implication of the text. It's just what I see in, in our life as a family every day. She submits to me only and always because I submit to Jesus. And of course, we're a believing wife and a believing husband, so it's not necessarily a situation that, that Peter's talking about here. But the truth is, that's important because oftentimes I'm just like Abraham. Oftentimes I am the unbelieving spouse, and I will, I mean, I will like roll my wife on, over, you know, like under the bus, over the bus, like to, to save myself every once in a while, to be, to be honest. And, and men, sometimes we're like that. We're the ones that constantly mess up. But here's what Sarah does. Here's what my wife does that I'm greatly appreciative of. She trusts in Jesus more than she trusts in me. And, and whereas I might constantly mess up, Jesus won't. He, he's not going to. And so Sarah entrusts herself to God and he rescues her from a broken, a broken and desperate situation. And Peter is reinforcing that moment to say there are real frightening things going on, ladies. Sometimes those frightening things are happening in your marriages. And so he's, saying, he's encouraging you, don't fear what's frightening, fear God. Here's what the Proverbs says. Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9 and 10. And, and as, I start, as I started talking about in the beginning, you know, we need wisdom to navigate some of these, uh, these, these circumstances of submitting to other people. When should we do it? How should we do it? Should I even do it? And, and Solomon says, uh, how do we get wisdom? He says, start with fear particularly with the fear of God. Here's a prayer that we should all pray, particularly in desperate situations. We, we can pray this. God, I, I don't want to fear anything going on in my life more than how I fear you. I don't want to fear the culture. I don't want to fear my friends. I don't want to fear what's on Facebook. Nothing else but you being the one I'm submitted to. You teaching me what's honorable. You, you helping me be godly. You helping me to fear you and no one else. That's a good prayer. So Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He also says, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. He's talking about understanding. That's the last thing that Peter will talk about, and he'll aim that towards the men. And so you want to grow, if you want to grow in understanding, here's what the wisdom of Solomon is before even Jesus was incarnated into the world, right? He says, get to know your Lord. Get to know Jesus. Why? Because he knows you better than you know yourself. And when you get to know Jesus, he's going to train you on who and how to fear so we have a, war, a word to the wives, live honorable lives. And then the last word that Peter gives is to, to, to husbands, a word to husbands, live in an understanding way. Verse seven, our last verse. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, another one of those like boom verses that, that have take, been taken out of context. And, and like this is... Um, all right, let me just get into the text. All right, so I, I think the, the overarching theme here is the, the overarching um, exhortation that Peter is giving to the men is that we would live understanding lives with our wives. But of course, the, the, the thing that jumps out, at least to me primarily, is this idea of women be the, being the weaker vessel. All right, that's one of those things that, uh, really? Right, so I want to tackle that first. So here's what Peter is not saying. So I want to like assuage all you guys so that we can like get this behind us. Peter's not saying that women are weaker emotionally, that we women are weaker spiritually, that women are weaker intellectually. He's not saying that. And of course, this is cultural right here. And the culture that they were in, the, the, the culture, the weaker understanding of the woman was that they were in a weaker, subservient place in society where they had less authority and power. Did you get that? 
This is, this is first century culture. Women were in a more subservient place, and that made them weaker in terms of authority and power. Culturally, they were weaker because women couldn't make the same decisions even for their own lives that men could make for them. But I think it also speaks to the fact that women on the whole are physically weaker. Now, some of you will say, well, that ain't true. I'm stronger than you. And that might be true. It's open for debate. I think back to 35 years ago when I was at West Point, and like I came in at a buck 137, right? I was 5'10". Like uh, I, was a, I was a string bean. Uh, and there were like loads of women that could out-physical me. But I think if you look at worldwide, okay, uh, I think this, this idea of men being physically stronger than women is, is kind of true, right? And, and if you don't believe that, I, I think the Bible would point us to the biology of our bodies. Our bodies tell us that men are meant to be different than wives. It's not, it's not like overarching all men are stronger than women, but I think it's just a general concept, right? But here's, here's the, the main thing that Peter's trying to get over to us so I won't get myself in trouble. Peter's overarching, overarching message is to men is, is be understanding, is live in an understanding way. In other words, men, walk in your wife's shoes every once in a while. Engage in, engage in your wife's life and understand what it's like to be her wherever she's at, whatever situation she might find herself in. And so I heard, a, a, heard of a guy who recently spent a whole year paying attention to women not gawking at them, paying attention as in trying to be more womanly. And his, his aim was to put himself in the perspective of a woman in the daily activities of her life and of her day. And, and, and so here's what he did. He, he paid attention in conversations where, where men and women were together talking to each other, and he found out that, man, a lot of times women were disrespected. He, 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 he paid attention to how women were object, objectified, he saw how women were disregarded. He saw how women were shamed for their bodies and how they looked. He watched the movies and paid attention to how they were treated. And, and he, he noticed that, you know, in, in the movies that we look at today, women are more objects than they are persons. We objectify women. And here's what he said the result of, of paying attention to women for a whole year was. He says he wept the whole year through thinking about how he himself lacked understanding and failed to care for the women that were around him. And so Peter is saying to, to us men, men, if you want to love your wives well, you got to understand them. And I can hear the man saying, well, Jeff, that's impossible, right? Like, how do I, how do, I do that? How do I, in my man, like, man thinking, understand women, even though, you know, more importantly, the woman in my life? And, and here's what I think Peter would say. Like, I, I, I get it, but are you even trying? Like, are you even trying, men? Uh, any of y'all remember the movie, Mel Gibson, uh, Mel Gibson's movie, what, what, what Women Want? So it's a crazy movie. It's a comedy. It's funny. And so Mel has an accident. I think he's taking a bath or something. He gets electrocuted, and he gains his superpower. And so he goes out, and he can, he can feel the thought. He can feel women's emotions and he can hear their thoughts. And of course, at first it's overwhelming, but then he decides to, he, he learns how to control it, and he tries to use it for his personal and professional advantage. I think that fails, but what he walks away from is, is he came away having a better appreciation for and a, a care for women, right? And I think some of us need a little bit of that. Some of you men are, are thinking, man, I ain't going there, Jeff. 
So like, I, I don't want to know what women's emotions feel like or what they're thinking. I got my own thoughts to, to, to worry about. But then, of course, we look at the Bible and see what Jesus did. What would Jesus do? The, the, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus came for his bride and he was tempted in every way and yet without sin so that he could sympathize and he could empathize in our weakness. And so whereas we say, I ain't going there. I don't want to understand a woman. The Bible tells us Jesus actually did that. And if Jesus did this for us men, why would we not want to do that for our wives? The question is, are we willing? Are we willing to understand? So Peter says, husbands, love, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. We live in a culture still dominated by men. We live in a culture where men tend to have uh, a lot more authority than women. And Peter is saying, Men, particularly those of you men that are married, don't you dare look down on your wife. That's what he's saying. And here's why he's saying it, because they are, as he says in the text, they are co-heirs with you in the grace of life. Peter, is, he's, he's equalizing the playing field, right? He's saying there is no difference between men and women except, except for the biological difference. He is elevating women to the same level as men. We're all elevated as Christ puts us in the heavenly realm, seated with Christ as a co-heir of grace. One way I think that we could envision this, men, is think of your spouse as with you, not you over her. You're not better than your wife. You're not bigger than your wife. You're not more loved by God than your wife because of what you do and who you are. You're equal co-heirs of grace with your spouse. That's the way the Bible sees you in your marriage. Secondly, Peter is pointing out that men are just as needy as women in the grace of God. If you're co-heirs of, of, of grace, here's what it suggests. You just daggone need grace, right? You, you need grace. You know, for the men, the culture grooms us to lead with pride, to step up and be men, right? My wife and I were talking about this yesterday. So here's the picture that society and, and you know, the, the world that we live in, particularly the Western world, gives of men. You got to be able to squat 150 pounds. You got to be able to like, like pick up an axe and throw it. You got to be able to lift up a log and, and toss it at least 10, 15 feet. If you can't drink a soda and, and, and burp and eat, eat, uh, eat bugs, you're not a man. And that leaves a bunch of us out, right? Because I don't know if I could squat 150 pounds right now. And I definitely ain't going to eat no bug in or out of the army. Don't handle snakes either. And if that makes me a man, I guess I'm not a man, right? And so we get confused as to, in regards to even what the Bible says about biblical masculinity, right? And, and like I played tennis. I didn't play football. And if, it like, if being a man is playing football, I wasn't a man then either. And so we can't put those, uh, those restrictions on, on manhood. Because the culture grooms us to lead like that, to have pride like that, to step up like that, and to think of men, uh, uh, manhood in terms of masculinity. <gasps> I can do it. Which means that we, we also can't admit that we have needs. It, it means that we also can't admit that, we, that we're weak when we're weak, that we're broken when we're broken. And that's counter to, 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 to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because to even come to, to God in the gospel, we have to admit that we have needs and that we're broken. This is what Peter will say in a couple weeks from now. First Peter 5, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so if your posture is that you have it all together, that you're, that you're uh, basically you're saying, you know what, God, I'm opposed to you. Jesus, I don't need you. I'm good. And man, that's not true, right? 
We wake up every morning and people ask us all kinds of questions. Hey, can I help you with this? Do you need that? And we often say, hey, no, I, I'm, I'm good. But men, a lot of times, we're not good and we should receive help. There's also a missional bent to this, this text here. And we've talked about that. So missionally, this is, this is one of the ways that Peter would encourage us to approach the culture around us. To not walk around all prideful and full of ourselves, but to humbly admit, you know what? I'm broken just like everybody else, and I have needs. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm a Christian, right? That's the part of living in an understanding way. To admit that we all need grace, you, me, everybody. Here's how he, here's how he ends our text. So that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, so that should have us on our knees, man, repenting before we even know what that means, because it's, it's saying there is a way for our prayers as men, our, our prayers to be hindered. And, and I think what Peter's getting at, if I could sum it up like this, he's saying, men, a husband's duty is to aim to understand his wife, to honor her as a woman, to honor her as a sister in the Lord. And it's, it's if Peter is, is putting his finger in our chest and saying, like, like, you got one job, dude, when it comes to your wife. And it's to honor her, it's to help her in her godliness. And it, even amidst the tensions of, of whatever life may be bringing you, you set the tone for this. This is how you're supposed to lead, in honor and godliness. Not just a woman's job, but yours as well. And when this doesn't happen, your, hairs, your, your, your prayers may be hindered. I think the key is we cannot do this apart from Jesus. That's the bottom line. So some of you in response to Peter's words this morning need to, need to hear this, but you also need to admit, you know what? I probably have not lived honorably with my life, particularly in my marriage, how I'm treating my wife or how my wife is treating even my husband. Some of you probably need to admit, you know what, I've not lived godly, not at least the way, the, the way that Peter is painting it. Some of us need to admit, I've not lived in an understanding way. Some of us need to admit, I've lived in fear. Fear of man, fear of Facebook, fear of the culture, fear of not fulfilling the, you know, the, the prideful way that everybody else says I'm supposed to live as a woman or, or a man. And here's what the Bible says about those things. It says it's sin. So we need to acknowledge that. We need to live up to that. But, but here's the goodness of the Bible. Jesus has already paid for those ways that we've sinned. You're forgiven, the Bible tells us. And so just reach out your hands and receive the grace of God from the only one who is honorable and godly all the time, Jesus himself. And so if I could speak just for a second to, to wives and then husbands, and then uh, I'll finish with the prayer, we'll be done. Wives here... Those of you on the live stream, the truth is you actually might be struggling in your marriage. You might be struggling in a relationship and you're saying you're in a hard situation or a predicament and, and, and it feels like there's no way out. And what I don't want is for you to hear from the church, shut up and submit. God forbid us that we should ever say that. That's heinous. That's evil. And that's not glorifying God. It's not drawing people to Jesus. And it's definitely not thinking about the other, loving God and other people like you love yourself. And so let's not do that. So if you are a woman in our church, on the live stream, in any way struggling in your marriage, hear this from your pastor. You need, you need three. Let me advise you for three things. Firstly, seek, seek prayer. 
Seek prayer from those you trust. I say this all the time to Christians. Everybody can't handle your sin. Don't, don't go to communion group and tell everybody everything about yours because everybody can't handle what's going on with you. Talk to those that you trust, that have earned your trust. Those are, those are the ones that you reveal the innermost secrets of your life to and entrust yourself to, to prayer from them. Some of you need counsel, and that's why you come to the church, to get counsel from pastors. Here in our church, we have a Titus 2 team. Those are mature women who come alongside the elders to help shepherd, uh, shepherd our church, and you can find them on our website and, and just avail yourself to them, to the, 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 the maturity, the spirituality, and the, the guidance that they might give you. And then let me say this, and this is going to be controversial for some of you, Maybe not. You know what? You know, like pastors are limited. Like a, a pastor knows the Bible, but every pastor doesn't have a counseling degree. And so um, there are some instances of abuse and um, some predicaments in our life that you actually need more than just pastoral care. You need uh, professional help. And so I, as a pastor who has a counseling degree, I, I would never forbid you from seeking professional help from a therapist right, psychotherapist, therapy, psychiatry, to receive help, particularly when you're in a dire situation. So ladies, I hope you hear that. But here's the thing that Peter encourages you to do, ladies. He, he says, firstly, remember, Jesus fully submitted himself to God the Father into the hands of sinful people like you and me. Jesus was gentle and quiet and meek, and he only spoke up on our behalf at the last moment, that, not that he would be saved, but that he would be saved. And so he's encouraging you like, look, that's the, that's the posture you should have, a gentle, quiet, meek spirit. But more importantly, his encouragement is, is go to Jesus. Not only the grace that you need for your own forgiveness, but so that you would have help to live in, in the difficult ways that Peter is suggesting here. These aren't easy ways. These are hard ways. And lastly, just like Peter does, I'll, I'll save my last for, for, for the men. And it's going to be very simple. Like men, like the Bible says likewise here. Right. It says likewise for a purpose. Everything that Peter has said from from chapter two, verse 17, actually chapter two, verse 11 applies to you. This, is, this isn't just guidance for your your wife to shut up and submit. It's, it's guidance for you in your relationships with your wives to live honorably, to live godly. Right. And to understand your wife, to live in an understanding way. And if that doesn't already have you on your knees asking for help, you have not been listening. Right. Here's the good news of the Bible. Jesus says we already have the help we need before we ask for it. And there, therein is, the, is the, the, the God that we serve. There's no better, more understanding man on the planet than Jesus. And if we simply ask him to, he will teach, it, teach us what it means to live with our wives in an understanding way. But collectively, here's what we pray on a, on a passage like this. is like, God, help us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Lord, these have been uh, not difficult words, but they are, um, they, were, they are words that give us pause. And so I pray that in the spirit this morning, you would help us do that. You would help us to pause under the grace of God and to reflect upon Peter's words to wives in a difficult predicament of marriage, but also to husbands, unbelieving husbands, husbands who have unbelieving moments, even as Christians, and God, we ask for your help. Lord, I pray over the marriages in, our, in transit. I pray that you would um, give us the wherewithal to admit our faults, to 
uh, to confess our sins one to another, and God, that you would heal us. I pray for our marriages, God, that um, we would be seen as, as you intended, a picture of Christ and his church. God, when the, when the world sees uh, the marriages in our, in our church, they would see a picture of you loving, willingly, unconditionally, of giving yourself, laying yourself down for the other, of sacrificing yourself even to your death, waking up every morning, choosing how we would die for our, our, our die to ourselves, pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And we do that for Jesus' sake, but also for the sake of our, our spouse. Lord, I pray for our church community and all the ways that we serve as your bride. Lord, you are a, a faithful husband to us. In all the ways we fail you, Lord God, you live in an understanding way towards us. And God, help us to reciprocate by living faithfully towards you. That's our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.